following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. Case where the religious clauses were incorporated, that was Cantwell versus Connecticut seven years earlier in 1940. Um, and that's where the, the state started being bound by the religious clauses. And all, most of these cases will be state or local uh, practices that are attacked. Speaking of the historical origins, in Everson versus Board, the court described what the, the, the background that, that gave birth to the religious clauses. Uh, a large proportion of the early settlers of this country came here from Europe to escape the bondage of laws which compelled them to support and attend government-favored churches. The centuries immediately before and contemporaneous with the colonization of America had been filled with turmoil, civil strife, and prosecutions generated in large part by established sects determined to maintain their absolute political and religious supremacies. supremacy. Um, of course, the American colonies were founded in many cases by religious refugees. In many cases, those religious refugees turned around and started oppressing minorities within their community. Rhode Island was founded, for example, as a haven uh, from the oppressive Massachusetts Congregationalists. Um, more on the background and historical origins with the power of government supporting them at various times and places. Catholics have persecuted Protestants. Protestants have persecuted Catholics. Protestant sects have persecuted other Protestant sects. Catholics of one shade of belief have persecuted Catholics of another shade of belief. And all of these have from time to time persecuted Jews. It's nice to see they get together on something. In efforts to force, force loyalty to whatever religious group happened to be on top and in league with the government of a particular time and place, men and women had been fined, cast in jail, cruelly tortured, and killed. I'm going to gloss over this background. Normally I would spend more time on this, but I think it is important to imagine and recall this mindset, which is only historical and very foreign to us today, uh, at least in this country. People actually killed each other um, over what by our standards are seemingly insignificant disagreements of religious doctrine. Other parts of the world, this still happens how much it turns on doctrine and how much more cultural and tribal uh, affinities we can argue. But broadly speaking, uh, there are two conflicting views, primarily the Establishment Clause and what its purpose and meaning is. There's what I call the contemporary view that uh, described in Everson and really stated forthrightly in Everson. In the words of Jefferson, the clause against establishment of religion by law was intended to erect a wall of separation between church and state. It essentially requires government neutrality not only between religions, but also between religion and non-religion. Contrasting with that, and, and really these two views kind of, they, they wax and wane. Uh, Supreme Court decisions in this area are frequently 5-4 one way, and then 5-4 the next, almost the exact case if you try to logically uh, explain the differences, forget about it. What the differences are is the liberal wing of four got a fifth vote in this case and uh, struck down the religious practice or observation, uh, observance, and uh, typically in the cases that come out the other way, it's the conservative wing got that fifth vote uh, may, and likewise um, upheld the uh, practice most typically. So the originalist view, which contrasts with the contemporary view, is uh, purports to be based upon the founding generation's original intent. I've kind of referred to it 
there in part by the, the fact that the, uh, the argument, I should say, that the um, clause was intended to apply only against the federal government, not the states. But the uh, originals point out that in the two volumes of debates on the religious clauses from the uh, convention, Constitutional Convention, no one ever suggested that government should be neutral between religion and atheism. Uh, Justice Rehnquist in dissent in the 1985 Wallace case states, the evil to be aimed at so far as those who spoke were concerned appears to have been the establishment of a national church and perhaps the preference of one religious sect over another, but it was definitely not concerned about whether the government might aid all religions even-handedly. Uh, back on that point, I should note, Rehnquist goes on to discuss that the wall of separation is, is relatively modern invention. Uh, metaphor first appeared in a, Jefferson, a letter that Jefferson wrote uh, in 1802, <coughs> not addressed at the founding convention. And for that matter, Jefferson's views, Rehnquist says, are irrelevant. He was in Paris during the constitutional debates. He didn't contribute them at all, or the ratification argument. So he's coming along later and imposing his views, which were far far from the mainstream, I think it is fair to say, among the founding generation at least, whether that's an important point or not. Uh, today, the religious clauses govern a fairly well-established groove, uh, if you will, of issues that come up and recur. School prayer and curriculum, including uh, the creationism debates, evolution in schools, uh, aid to religion and to religious schools, public, which is uh, what the Everson case was, the first one, Public religious displays or expressions. Seems this time of year, every year, there's either a crash that's put up by some city, um, Christmas tree, menorah, what have you, a pledge of allegiance, Ten Commandments, certainly in the classroom or outside of the classroom. Um, one of the more recent uh, establishment clause cases was the Ten Commandment monument that sits on the Capitol grounds in Austin um, and was challenged and upheld. Uh, again, on a 5-4 vote, very surprising alignment. Uh, and then free exercise issues, which I'll probably spend more time talking about than Establishment Clause today. Uh, use of peyote in ritual Native American, uh, Native American rituals, uh, ritual slaughter, zoning and land use issues involving primarily churches and church property, uh, and tax exemptions for churches and religious institutions. Uh, in actuality, I think it's fair to say, and this is big overview, the court's establishment clauses erect something less than a wall of separation between church and state, uh, but generally reinforce a broad societal consensus that religious matters should be separate from the secular realm and try to keep them apart in an uneven uh, way, but best we can in the real world. Uh, free exercise clause cases tend to be less frequent, I think, but it's uh, fair to say I also, that they are more challenging jurisprudentially, um, difficult line drawing in these areas, and which we'll get into now. Actual cases. Any questions on background? Any arguments, disagreements? Anything I've said that really offended anybody? Before we move on, sir. What are creches? Creches. Crash. Uh, a crush is good question. A um, kind of baby in a manger scene, essentially. It's not nativity scenes. Nativity, nativity. Scene. Uh, Baby Jesus in the manger in Bethlehem, 
uh, you know, Mary and Joseph usually stand by. That's what happens by. when you live in the U.S. neighborhood. You don't see too many. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't seen. Yeah. You can drive by. Probably churches have them. Uh, again, used to be uh, before the Supreme Court weighed in, something you would commonly see, I think, in a city hall display about this time of year. Um, but it's a, a symbolic you know, reenactment, if you will, of the... Uh, of the, the birth of baby Jesus. If you saw a diner, that's uh, the movie, it's the important part. Is it Kevin Bacon who dresses up in a diaper? Not a kosher name, we wouldn't know about that. <laughs> well, getting into the cases, um, in the spirit of the season, I thought this one was particularly relevant. Uh, Allegheny County versus Greater Pittsburgh ACLU. It was a 1989 Supreme Court case. Uh, the ACLU sued uh, Allegheny County in Pittsburgh and challenged two holiday displays on downtown public property. Uh, this is almost a law school hypothetical of, of the uh, Establishment Clause in action. Uh, there was a crash, nativity scene, on the county courthouse's grand staircase, which had been donated there uh, by the Holy Name Society and topped by an angel bearing the banner Gloria in excelsis Deo, with an exclamation point. I didn't put the exclamation point, but. Uh, glory to God in the highest. Some would call that a phrase fraught with religious significance. Uh, also nearby, an 18-foot tall menorah owned by Chabad and placed there uh, outside the city county building next to a 45-foot tall Christmas tree with a statement by the mayor declaring the whole display, part of the city's salute to liberty. A secular concept, presumably. Uh, interestingly, the menorah was part of, and, and really the, one of the original uh, manifestations of Chabad's public menorah campaign, the Rabbi uh, Menachem Schneerson, uh, who's, was he the founder? Well, not the founder, but, but the leader. Believed by many to be a messiah. Let's not go there. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm pushing the envelope here. Uh, anyway, uh, in 1987, Rabbi Schneerson uh, charged his followers uh, to celebrate Hanukkah publicly uh, and, and build menorahs, private lands, public lands, wherever they could, uh, really inaugurating a dispute um, with the Ameri picking a fight with the American Jewish Congress, who um, published a 28-page um, report the following year uh, criticizing the public menorah campaign for fostering divisiveness uh, and um, bringing disrepute upon the Jewish community in the United States. Jump in there. That's really? Can I provoke you? That's what we're supposed to do. <laughs> I would challenge that it's the lack of respect of each other and our respective religions that is the problem and not the display of religious items. Not that I agree I mean, I don't, you know, oftentimes when you hear this debate about public display, you know, it gets, it gets glossed over because public, what does public mean? I mean, there are plenty of public displays of religion in the United States. By that I mean churches, synagogues, often put outside their churches and synagogues for the public to see. And of course you drive through Bel Air or any neighborhood, you'll see plenty of Christmas lights and 
and even the Norris Island. But this is on city property. This this well, case was on city property. The issue, the issue is city property. Now, is it a governmental or is it a private public display? I don't think anybody disagrees in the United States that you have a right privately to do a public display of religion as long as you're not hurting anybody else. But when you hear this debate, it's like, oh, they're, you know, the public's, they're taking a religion out of the public. That's not a fair comment, because what they're really doing is taking the uh, religion out of the governmental public square. And that's the issue. I think the cases obviously view that as a very important, you know, capital P public versus out there in the public. Uh, I, I think it's an interesting point. Uh, theologically, and I invite the rabbi to comment, uh, because in Christianity, and I even looked up Matthew, uh, is it chapter chapter six, uh, verses one through six, which talk about um, Jesus charged his followers not to publicly display their righteousness and uh, uh, giving and caring for the needy. <coughs> Be not a hypocrite. Uh, be, do not act as scribbles, and, and do not want to be one of these people who prays in public. Pray in quiet; you'll get your reward. Uh, is there is that so, uh, to address in the Jewish tradition? So, in defense of Rabbi Schneerson, um, <laughs> the issue—I mean, specifically with menorah—that happens to be a concept. Since it's Hanukkah, we can talk about it. It's known as Pursume Nisa, which means there, there is a specific concept as it relates to Hanukkah that we're supposed to publicize the miracle. The question is, I mean, publicize it within the Jewish community, outside the Jewish community, that's debatable. <coughs> so this is, that's why he gave out this ruling saying, place the menorahs in public places, because there's a specific law here to publicize the miracle. Usually, you're right, we try to keep to ourselves, especially... Um, in certain realms, but but in this specific area, there is a concept of publicizing the miracle that occurred. So that's why he, in, in this again, as it relates to the menorah. Is it a difference because it's a historical holiday, commemorates um, an event? It's an interesting question why it's different, but I, I think it clearly, it does have, and we mentioned those connotations of a symbol of liberty and freedom, so it does have that, you know, I guess victory of, of good over evil and things like that. So I think that's part of the publicizing. I'll discuss a little more, but I just want to disagree with Alan in the sense of the, I think once you take uh, religion out of the, what you're calling the public forum, the public governmental forum, so then, I mean, that that is in a certain sense, especially in our country, in a certain sense, that is, that is the public forum. Um, because there, you know, when you're saying you can't, the government or any governmental property can't display anything to do with religion and you're taking it out of all the public schools which is our children's education so you're very you're limiting i mean in that sense you're limiting uh, what the public is going to be exposed to what the education system and and therefore you're saying the government is saying the establishment cause is saying that we need to get rid of all religion um, in that sense from again from from the publicly what you want to call a publicly funded forum or whether it be city property or any public schools, anything that's public, that's publicly funded, cannot have any religion. At least that's what they're saying. That's how they're using it today in many court rulings. Okay, so so that leaves a major void in society. Um, and that's it. I would just respond that you know you take the public school, and I think that's a good example. And I don't think you know I, I think there's a difference between. Uh, 
the government, when I use public, I mean government. So it's just, I use public, I mean governmental public. Uh, so I think there's a difference uh, in, in, in the government uh, promoting a particular kind of religious observance as opposed to learning about religion. Again, I don't think that's prohibited. I don't think, you know, if you want to study, if you want to have a comparative religion course, no one's saying that can't happen. You can't learn about it, or there can't even be, you know, the, I guess there's some cases that have said you can have a club. If you, you know, allow, uh, uh, you know, a chess club, you can have a Christian club. You can have a Jewish club. Which that, that's also gone to the that's courts. Club. That's not so simple, having a no, religious club in a public school. Let me just, let me just finish okay. But, you know, having grown up in Houston, Texas, at a public school, okay, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the, you know, I grew up, uh, at Christmas time, there were, you know, Christmas carols. We did not sing Hanukkah songs, you know. They were just Christmas songs. And I, I you know, frankly, I felt uncomfortable with that. Now, you could say the, the, the answer to that is, well, let's have Christmas songs, and let's have Hanukkah songs, and let's have Buddhist uh, chants, and, you know, whatever. But the answer, I think, the better answer, I think, in the way I think the, the First Amendment establishes this as, you know, we're not, either you're going to have a program that is inclusive of all religions, or uh, you're not going to have a program. Right. I think that's a good so I, I, policy, I, I think that's supported by the Constitution. Right, so I feel for you growing up in Houston. I grew up in Brooklyn. We didn't have that problem. Uh, that one, uh, yes, no one signed Christmas cards. That's true. <laughs> so, but the point is, I, I just think, and, and it's a dichotomy. It's, it, there is a problem. There's pros and cons on both sides. But I think if you have the establishment cause, which is the way it's being used today, where it's in a certain sense, again, from the public, governmental public forum, making our society totally devoid of any form of religion because we're so scared of offending someone. There's a great risk in that in society. Just uh, I think there's a, there's there's a risk in the sense of, first of all, there you know, the government can't legislate any type of moral because at the risk of offending someone. Because you're saying once you're dealing with morals, okay, that's then all of a sudden becomes religious. We can legislate any, um, you know, for any group that's uh, any other group, you know, whatever we want to legislate for. But if it's anything to do with religion, we can't, there's no legislation, you know, we can't talk about. So I think there's just the risk of, of ha ending up with a society that, that religion is viewed, so to speak, as fanatical. Anything that to do with religion, people are scared of. And there's this issue of offending people. I uh, recently, a friend of mine was in Manhattan, so they, you know, they have the, the window displays in the department stores in Macy's. And so they had a, a Christmas tree and a, and a menorah, and, then, and the sign just said, happy everything. <laughs> so, uh, right. The point is because we're so scared of offending someone by saying uh, Merry Christmas or Happy Hanukkah or, or singing Christmas carols that the, the society becomes totally devoid of anything to do with religion, which I think could be a problem for society at large. Personally, it is a problem, I understand, when you're growing up in a place where the majority is Catholic or Christian. Or, I understand in, that, in those situations. But I think in general, there's this risk of, of making all of society devoid of religion can lead to greater Texas, greater problems. Right, right. Uh -huh. Not in Texas. It's never, what are you saying? Texas, Texas is never going to be devoid of <laughs> Okay. <laughs> that could be. Even in the example you get it, Rabbi, I don't have a problem with, I mean, that's not the government deciding you cannot say Merry Christmas or Happy Hanukkah or whatever it is. But is it? I mean, that's just a private institution that is sensitive to the sensibilities of their customers. 
And I don't, you know, that's, that's their issue. I don't care one way or the other. Yeah, but I think it all uh, comes about. It's a constitutional issue. Oh, and 100%, but I think it comes about from, from, the gov from the fact of the Establishment Clause where, again, we're so nervous and we're legislating laws that we're so nervous about offending other parties that we can't say it like this, we can't say, you know. Well, so it comes down from the top. Uh, let me jump in and say one thing I've observed. I mean, I, I think y'all are reenacting kind of the classic discussion uh, that's just at some level that's temperament or political or personal upbringing or experience and no one you know I, I attended an all-male high school someone St. John I grew up in Dallas and we had chapel twice a week and look you know I I didn't no one held a gun to my head doing well my parents did but uh, <laughs> but you know legally uh, I had a choice uh, we chose that we were moving to this a lot of Jewish kids were there, substantial percentage, and they just sat while everybody rose and, and sang psalms. Uh, fine. Um, some that some people that made very uncomfortable for me. I felt like we were kind of being rude, just sitting there like this while everybody's, you know. But also, it'll be awkward to stand up and start singing. <laughs> so, I mean, that was an uneasy truce that one had to negotiate. I think one of the problems with establishment clause jurisprudence is. These nine Supreme Court justices, they are smart, wise, legal scholars, part-time philosophers. They probably fancy themselves. Um, if they were deciding at the level of the school whether you can have a Jewish club or whether we're going to have a moment of silence or whether we're going to allow a student group to commemorate um, uh, Purim uh, or Sukkot or something, um, we would probably get along fine, and, and Mark, you may have some thoughts on this. There'd probably be that spirit of live and let live that works. I think uh, similar to the horror stories you read in the paper about you know, a kid coming to school with an aspirin and getting suspended or kicked out uh, or because you know, they gave uh, some of their medicine to another kid who was sick. Uh, there's a zero tolerance uh, policy. It's easier not to think about the trade-offs and the issue and whether, you know, the intent. It's you just have zero tolerance. We don't do drugs at school. Uh, we don't do religion. And I think at the level where these decisions are often made, in the, in, at the independent school districts around this state and in the country, uh, you have people who just shorthand the Supreme Court decisions in this area with no religion in schools. And they're very heavy-handed about it. I mean, there's there's a lot of fine lines in there. Like, is, is it student-initiated, student-led? No, 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 no religion in schools. And so you get cases all the time where it's like, uh, you know, this is not a hard case, and it comes to the federal district court and all that. Um, but but I, mean, I think that's a real-world cost. Is the Supreme Court can be as intricate and precise and fine-tune these lines as they as they can. Ultimately, it's going to get translated much more crudely at the local level. Mark, I didn't mean to call you out, but I do want to talk about the Barron case um, in a bit, or have you talk about it some? And I think your comment kind of triggered that in me, which is at some point, you know, everybody needs to have some common sense and bring some tolerance and willingness to sort of accommodate to some of these things. The public square obviously being a, a sharp line that uh, I'm not suggesting should be crossed. Uh, anyway, back to the Allegheny case. Uh, with respect, there's the crash, there's the menorah. The Christmas tree, strangely, was not challenged, not an issue in the case. Um, 
the crash is held by a 5-4 vote to violate the Establishment Clause, it sends an unmistakable message that it supports and promotes the Christian praise to God that is the crush's religious message. Hard to argue with, frankly. Uh, but also, they held, the menorah does not violate the Establishment Clause. And that was a six to three vote. Um, placed next to the Christmas tree, the menorah itself creates the effect of just an overall holiday setting uh, and just a tr cultural tradition that's being respected and, and sort of observed here, nothing religious. Um, this uh, has been said to, uh, well, let me give you the operative reasoning, quote, in the shadow of the tree, the menorah is readily understood as simply a recognition that Christmas is not the only traditional way of observing the winter holiday season. In these circumstances, then, the combination of the tree and the menorah communicates not a simultaneous endorsement of both the Christian and Jewish faiths, but instead a secular celebration of Christmas, coupled with an acknowledgement of Hanukkah as a contemporaneous alternative <coughs> tradition. Almost diversity brought into the Establishment Clause context. Uh, it's been said to be the origin of what some call the Santa Claus plus two reindeer rule. Well, you can have a crash, but as long as it's you know, next to Santa Claus and two reindeer, that kind of secularizes the whole religious message and just makes it a holiday uh, uh, memorial. And Justice Thomas makes a provocative point that this, Rabbi is, this is on the Supreme Court. You're jumping the Supreme Court? Huh? On the same case, on the minority? Same case. Once it got to the Supreme Court? The whole, this is oh, all this is Supreme, all Supreme Court. Court. Okay, because before yeah. that, I mean, just originally I'd read that the initial, when they won in the city, it was appealed. Um, originally they won, I think, with the city, in the city of Pittsburgh, and then it was appealed to circuit court. I remember reading the judge's name, of course, was Greenberg. He's the one who said it was unconstitutional originally. That's how, that's how eventually it made it to the Supreme Court. Right. It's interesting how these play out at the local level as well. Um, Justice Thomas, uh, in his concurrence, makes what I think is a provocative point. Uh, this court's precedent elevates the trivial to the proverbial federal case by making benign signs and postings subject to challenge. Yet even as it does so, the court's precedent attempts to avoid declaring all religious symbols and words of long-standing tradition unconstitutional by counterfactually declaring them of little religious significance. Even worse, the incoherence of the court's decisions in this area renders the Establishment Clause impenetrable and incapable of consistent application. Uh, all told, this court's jurisprudence leaves courts, governments, and believers and non-believers alike confused which you referred to, and the lower court had got it wrong in this case, and uh, according to the Supreme Court, school districts do, um, and and like I said, when it, the transmission belt down to the you get to the school district level, it's it's a mess. Um, but there there's this uh, um, quality to these cases, especially at the trial court level, where it's most noticeable, where um, and. You know, I talked about this, so I'm going to toss it over to you, but uh, a, a well-advised party that's seeking to uphold a religious observance is, is, should be told, is told, you know, don't, don't stress the religious significance of the, men the menorah. Don't put it up and say, this is what God, the miracle that commemorates the miracle that God uh, brought to the Israelites. No, no. Just, yeah, it's, it's, we light this thing, we gift, give, give gifts, Hanukkah gelt, we spin the dreidel. That's the way to approach this. It's just a holiday tradition. And so uh, I think Justice Thomas is saying, look, 
you know, maybe we're being too tight on what's permitted uh, and excluding too much. On the other hand, we're also to squeeze in things that we think should be permitted. We're pretending they're not religious at all. And clearly, um, in the in most of the Chabad cases, which I counted here, one, two, three, there's at least five cases that went to courts, different various courts before the Supreme Court. Um, in the various states, they, most of the time, it seeming like their defense was that it's not, Kindling the Menorah is not a religious act, it's more of a cultural, again, a symbol of, of uh, freedom over, uh, symbol of freedom or victory of evil, uh, of, of good over evil, um, which clearly is false, no question. It, it is a religious act, we make a blessing, we light the Menorah. So I actually, in defense, the attorney, I, this morning I watched an interview with Nathan Lewin, who was the attorney, Supreme Court, and he denied, someone asked him this question. He denied that he ever used that defense. He claims that the American Jewish Committee, or Congress, who was it? American Jewish Congress. American, Jew, American Jewish Con um, Committee, I think it was both of them actually, um, were the ones that brought that in afterwards, and they claimed that they used that, which, but he, he claims it's not true, so. But in any case, it is a false statement. It clearly is a religious act, and, and there's no question. Make a blessing on it. And I saw this somewhat close up about, it was about eight, seven or eight years ago, there was a challenge here locally in a federal district court to the uh, Bible that was outside uh, 301 Fannin, the then Harris County Civil District Court building, uh, since they moved to the new facility. But there was this stone monument, about kind of like this, and under a glass case was a, uh, a New Testament Christian Bible open to a certain page. You couldn't tell what it said. You couldn't tell a page because the uh, humidity was so, I mean, it, it, there were water blots all over the, the glass, so you couldn't even make out what the word said. Um, but interestingly, a, a local predominantly Republican evangelical group of folks uh, really took this up as their cause. The Harris County attorney, it was a county facility, so the Harris County attorney was handling the lawsuit, and I just know uh, they must have been going crazy because they knew the way to, to win this case is, you know, look, we're not sure how this got there, which is true. This was uh, in honor of a private citizen who had been a meaningful contributor to the Harris County, uh, to Harris County, and to honor him, they chose what, you know, said, what, what memorial would you like? And this is what he chose. Um, because he found it significant. So it's like, not, not the county's decision, we just honored this private citizen and that's what that person decided. Um, we're not sure why it's there, which they weren't, uh, how it got there exactly. Um, no one can see what the page is. I mean, that would be the way to win the case. There's no religious significance, you can't even read it. Um, but in fact, they had a, uh, a prominent Republican Party official who was also an ordained pastor take the stand as an expert and talk about the religious significance and how Christianity is a, um, an uh, irreplaceable uh, adjunct to democracy and, and part of our uh, democratic <laughs> education and culture and, and you know, without morality, a democracy cannot long survive. It, it just, you know, it's like, okay, check. And you see the judge going down the, the lemon test, which guides the establishment clause, just like secular purpose? No. Scratch. Religious. Check, check, check. Thank you. You may step down. We're done here. Um, so uh, that's kind of the tension that Justice Thomas is talking about, that we're, we're forcing believers to act like they're non-believers uh, and encouraging this kind of hypocrisy. 
Moving on to um, more of the, fr the free exercise clause cases, I thought this was interesting, not a Supreme Court decision, Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, Quering versus Nebraska, 1984, uh, a woman a Christian worshiper who literally interpreted the Second Commandment prohibiting graven images, um, asked and got the court to order the state of Nebraska to issue her a driver's license without the required photo for that reason. Uh, interesting in part because the court relies upon rabbinical interpretations of the commandment uh, to show that it's, this is a genuine and, and uh, authentic religious belief, citing and quoting passages from the Mishnah. Um, and I think an interesting precedent, you're seeing cases like this well up, uh, nothing really at the Court of Appeals or Supreme Court level that I've seen, but uh, given present day clash between security concerns and talk about national ID and a, a lot of uh, sincere adherents of Islam who uh, also subscribe to this literalist prohibition on graven images. With their counterpart. Yeah. Need to move because we want to get to our okay. We're running out of time. One of the uh, interest to our crowd, Goldman versus Weinberger, was a 1986 Supreme Court decision. An Orthodox Jewish rabbi who was commissioned, also commissioned Air Force officer, was ordered not to wear his yarmulke pursuant to a um, Air Force regulation on uniform attire. Uh, prohibited wearing authorized headgear indoors, quote, except by armed security police. And here, you would think this would come out one way, it came out the other. Uh, the regulations challenged here, the court said, reasonably and even-handedly regulate dress in the interest of the military's perceived need for uniformity. The First Amendment, therefore, does not prohibit them from being applied to petitioner, even though their effect is to restrict the wearing of the headgear required by his religious beliefs. Um, significance? Well, here they say the Free Exercise Clause does not require the accommodation of this sincere religious practice. It's an even-handed law not targeting uh, the religious practice. Uh, that leads up to Employment Division versus Smith, really a, a um, landmark case in the free exercise context. 1990, I was in law school when this came out, uh, so I very well remember the, uh, the uproar it caused uh, when uh, two adherents of the Native American church were fired from their jobs as drug and alcohol rehab counselors because then a Native American religious <laughs> ceremony, they ingested peyote, uh, they were fired, they uh, filed with the state of Oregon for unemployment benefits, and they were denied um, for work-related misconduct. You can see the point there. I mean, you're a drug counselor, for goodness sakes. You're going off and doing peyote on the weekend? Really? Um, the holding was uh, the right of free exercise, and really in line with the Goldman versus Weinberger case, the right of free exercise does not relieve an individual of the obligation to comply with a valid and neutral law of general applicability. Don't do drugs on the ground that the law proscribes or prescribes conduct that his religion prescribes or proscribes. Uh, but a really major significance in that this was a 180 degree reversal of the then existing test for free exercise from the Sherbert versus Verner case, um, which had required a, a compelling interest for the government to deny, same type of fact pattern, unemployment benefits to a Seventh-day Adventist who was fired because she observed the Sabbath on what was a work day for her employer, but for her the Sabbath, Saturday in this case. Um, while we skip, this one is uh, practice of Santeria in Florida. Um, we'll get on with 
the show here. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act was a reaction by Congress to the Employment Division Division versus Smith case, um, restoring the strict scrutiny that uh, had previously applied under the Sherbert test. Even religiously neutral laws must now pass this test uh, that any substantial burden of a religious practice or exercise must be necessary to further a compelling government interest. And on top of that, the act, proposed government action must be the least restrictive means to achieve that compelling government interest. This was uh, so popular in the uproar over Employment Division versus Smith, so great that it unanimously passed the House. 97 to 3 in the Senate, and President Clinton signed it into law. Uh, the Supreme Court was not going to let the Congress have the last word on the meaning and applicability of the Free Exercise Clause. So, in City of Bernie versus Flores here in Texas, um, in 1997, the court strikes back uh, and held that a um, historic preservation law that was preventing the church, the Catholic Church in Bernie, from expanding uh, uh, could not, the church could not use RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, to strike down or oppose the, uh, the enforcement of the preservation law because uh, RIFRA was unconstitutional as applied to the states. The uh, court itself gets to decide what the scope and extent of the 14th Amendment is as applied to the states in incorporating the First Amendment religious clauses. Um, and said, legislation which alters the meaning of the free exercise clause cannot be said to be enforcing the clause pursuant to Congress's powers to uh, enact legislation to enforce the clause. In other words, we get to say what the clause requires or prohibits. Congress only gets to enforce it. Uh, and to the extent RIFRA is applied to the states, uh, Congress didn't have the power to legislate directly for the states in that regard. But uh, later, uh, it was clarified that RIFRA still applies to the federal government. In other words, Congress can say, look, free exercise clause requires that we honor, we accommodate religious observance this far, but we can by statute say the federal government's going to go further, go beyond that minimal threshold. Uh, but they can't impose that minimal threshold on the states under our constitutional structure. That said, following Bernie, uh, many states enact many RIFRAs uh, that basically are the same as the federal statute. Texas is uh, embodied the Texas Civil Practice and Remedies Code. And this is the statute I didn't know about until Rabbi Grossman walked into my court, known as the Texas Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And on that point, uh, I'll end on... You talk about the case? Yeah, I want to sit down and we'll talk about this. Okay. Okay. Um, case that came before me when I was ancillary uh, in October of 2007. The ancillary position is the two judge who for two weeks has the duty of anything that comes in the door of emergency nature, request for TRO, that kind of thing, uh, comes to that judge, even if it's filed in somebody else's court. In uh, this case, was actually filed on the 133rd. I was the 129th. But in, I was in chambers. I wasn't having court hearings that day. I didn't have trial. I'm just back in my office minding my own business. And my uh, uh, deputy, courtroom deputy, comes back and says, two rabbis here to see you. <laughs> I say, who? She mentions rabbi, when it was Rabbi Grossman. I said, well, I figure, you know, he's hitting me up for another CLE or <laughs> something. Uh, no, as a matter of fact. So I come out very casually. Turns out he's there to stop an autopsy and recover a body for burial. 
of uh, one of his, what would you say? Constituents. Constituents uh, that he administered to. Um, and, and he's there with lawyer Greg Rosenberg, who has an order for me to sign and represents that Harris County Medical Examiners knows about this. They're fine with it. Uh, we discuss it. I, uh, uh, interesting, humorously enough, from a recusal standpoint, ethics, this is our ethics component. Um, uh, Mr. Rosenberg hands me a letter that's on torch stationary letterhead um, explaining why they're there and that these rabbis have authority to do this. And, and I, this I had gotten okay. a letter from uh, Simon 15 rabbis in Houston um, saying that the autopsy in this case, according to Jewish law, cannot be done. So just to explain this quickly, the issue with an autopsy is because the Torah does obligate um, one to bury a body and you can't mutilate the body. If it's to save a life, of course, then you can. For, let's say organ donation, or let's say you need to catch, there was a crime committed, you need to catch, uh, find out who, who committed the crime. So in those cases, you'd be allowed to perform the autopsy. Just for investigative reasons, without just to know the cause of death, that's not sufficient reason. Another, um, I guess, exception to, to doing an autopsy would be if you need to know why this person died for other family members might have the same disease. But in this case, it was very clear to us and to the person's doctor, there was no, it was clear what the cause was, what the cause of death was. Um, there was no issue, but still the state um, said they had a compelling reason, or the county said they had a compelling reason to perform the autopsy. That's when we came to Judge Dorfman. I, I didn't know, by the way, when I entered the courtroom, I didn't know who the ancillary judge would be, although we were friendly prior to that. And when you, when actually when it said your name there, I said, oh, so I mentioned to the lawyer, and actually you were late. We were waiting, and the autopsy was gonna happen that morning. <laughs> He wasn't coming, so I had his cell number. I said, "Should I call him? He's probably in the gym. Let me call. <laughs> Let me call Grant." But uh, my attorney advised me to not call him because <laughs> that couldn't jeopardize the case. So take it from there. So uh, the, uh, Mr. Rosenberg tenders the letter to me and says, "This should give you some comfort, Judge." And I said, "Actually, that raises my discomfort level substantially for reasons that are apparent on the face of the document." <laughs> and one was on the left column of the letter is the board of directors for Torch. <laughs> And my name appears. <laughs> so the judge's name was on my stationery. That could be a slight problem. So I think we tried to get the yes. Harris County Medical Examiner on the phone. Couldn't. No, we, we took it out of, we rejected it from evidence. Yeah, yeah. So Which we took out that letter from the evidence. That letter is probably important evidence, but you know, as it played out. Um, but an interesting case because this is where the rubber really meets the road. Uh, an actual case and actually had to apply the Texas Religious Freedom Restoration Act in my decision. It was undisputed, I think, and clear to everybody the Houston Police Department had investigated, established a crime scene. The medical examiner had been there at the house as well. Uh, this, the decedent had committed suicide, had a two-plus year history of depression and suicidal thoughts, uh, two empty pill bottles found on the floor, no suspicion of foul play whatsoever. Um, and, uh, and the police department at least seems satisfied, but uh, long story short, I won't bore you the procedural history, the medical examiner came back with the county attorney with uh, him and wanted an all hearing that we ended up taking the rest of the day to do. Uh, the widow was there, but no, didn't. She, she no? She okay. I thought I, she appeared at one point. Did not testify. The rabbis did. Um, 
and established the basis for this religious prohibition on autopsy. Um, I just want to mention that uh, Judge Dorfman did give them an opportunity to request another judge because of the issue um, with me and, and for the fact that he was Jewish too. He had mentioned that. 25 initially. judges in the civil district building. <laughs> I'm the, I was, at that time, I was the only Jewish judge. So he did, I remember he called both counsel up to the bench and he mentioned that he, he is a friend of mine and he's on my board and he give them, give they gave them the opportunity to request another judge. Do you think it mattered that you were Jewish? Yeah. Why? Uh, I think I would have, and I think it was to the county's advantage not to recuse me because as a Jew, I think I was much more uh, liable to say I don't accept this as either a sincere expression of religious faith or as an important interest or I think it's outweighed whereas I think a, a, a non-Jew would be very hesitant to look a Jew in the eye or rabbis and say nah you don't get this. Yeah, this issue came up with Vaughn Walker who's, who's gay and he had the, the Prop 8 case and a lot of people actually asked him to recuse and he would be able to benefit. And this also came up during the civil rights series. There was a famous African-American judge somewhere in I think Philadelphia, who he was often asked to recuse any civil rights case, and he refused. And it's interesting to hear your answer about how your Jewish faith influences your ability to handle a case involving Jewish doctrines due to Texas law. That said, I did offer to recuse. Yes, <laughs> he did offer, and, he gave, and then he gave a 15-minute recess. So I was praying that 15 minutes that uh, <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> Primarily <laughs> because of my affiliation with, with Torch. But, but had, you not, <clears throat> had you not been affiliated with the group, I would absolutely not have offered to recuse on the basis of being Jewish, and I've I've given a PowerPoint presentation on a talk on Vaughn Walker's decision shortly after it came out, and I think that's a specious argument. Look, you're you're a gay judge, you're a straight judge. If that implies your ruling, then neither one is neutral. Um, so it kind of begs the question. You kind of get two for the price of one here, Rabbi. You realize this, but. My father passed away in 06, in August, and uh, he was in a nursing home. And uh, we heard from the medical examiner's office. And they, they would talk to me first. And uh, he said, well, what did you, what did he die of? I said, well, he had an infection or something like that. And he died of an infection. It's more complicated, but that's irrelevant. So he said, well, we need to do an autopsy. I said, what? I said, excuse me? So I had already called the funeral home, who was bringing over the car, whatever, to carry him out, and uh, I was arguing with him on the phone, and when he came over, I said, take him and go now, <laughs> because they were just really, I mean, I don't know what, it was like, I mean, this was not, it wasn't a murder, I mean, it wasn't anything. Well, they claim right? they, they have to ascertain. They said they have to ascertain what the, yeah, I said, and I said, you're asking me, I'm not a doctor, ask the doctor if you want some medical thing. I say, you're, you, you're gonna do this based on what I'm telling you? Give me a break, you know? And it's like, they were just so stonewalled. I don't understand what's going on in their office. Yeah, uh, you know, I, my belief, I, I'm similarly mystified as to why they appealed my ruling in this, because body was gone. Uh, although they did seek to disinter the body. Seriously, wow. <laughs> I hadn't realized California. that until I reread the uh, appeals opinion last night. Um, it was sent to California. At least they wanted to get jurisdiction in California to, to. And I can't. I don't believe it's motivated by this case. I believe. I mean, I think they had a sincere, good faith belief that they are charged by law, by Texas statute, 
to autopsy in these situations. I think that's wrong, but it's not my job. They have the discretion whether to do it or not, um, even under the statute. But I uh, had language in my findings of fact that, that the Court of Appeals recited that said, I had no doubt that the um, medical examiner was acting in sincere good faith belief that he was charged by duty to do this, charged by law with the duty to do this. Um, uh, let me just read you kind of the... Well, uh, you're free to... Uh, look, I, I don't know. I mean, there's a, there's a vehemence and um, uh, a lack of sensitivity there that I don't understand unless they just don't want the precedent established. I think that's what it was. There there's was a fear of a precedent. Yeah, Harris County's a big county with a lot of diverse populations with religious practices that are similar uh, in beliefs. I said, um, anyway, just... I think it just must have been a slow death day and they needed some body yeah, uh, I'm applying the uh, RIFRA factors here, and, and this was my kind of the, the nub of my decision making. In this case, uh, after deciding that, yeah, there's this duty that the medical examiner has, in which there is no evidence and no suspicion of foul play or a violent death, and no existing reason to believe that this was anything but suicide, the determination to a reasonable degree of medical certainty of the exact cause of the decedent's death does not constitute a compelling governmental interest. In short, ruling out homicide in this case cannot be a compelling interest when there's no reason to rule it in. Further, even if the determination of the cause of the decedent's death to a reasonable degree of medical certainty does constitute a compelling governmental interest, the performance of the challenge practice, the autopsy, is not the least restrictive means of achieving that interest. It is undisputed that disinterment is available to the medical examiner and is authorized by statute. In the event that further investigation yields evidence to suggest foul play or other criminal conduct resulting in death, then disinterment followed by either a limited or complete autopsy in the medical examiner's discretion would constitute a less restrictive means to further the governmental interests at issue. And uh, just as a wind it up and not to leave you with misleading impression, uh, on appeal I was reversed. Um, and, and to add insult to injury, I don't know if they intended this or not, but you need to check. You need to check into this. One of the cases, on, one of the cases on standing that they recited uh, as support, and actually upholding that that the uh, the widow did have standing to bring this case and overruling that uh, argument. There were four arguments on appeal. They struck down three of the medical examiners and found. Uh, in, the, in its favor on the fourth was, uh, but one of the cases they cited was Gilmer Independent School District versus Dorfman out of the Tyler Court of Appeals, which is my, un my uncle's case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, funny. Is there, is there a, was there a, a, a county policy in all uh, suicides to do a, uh, uh, no, I think I think the law is under in Texas. The law is under and correct me if I'm wrong. Under the age of 50, if someone dies in a private residence, they need it's that's that's enough of a compelling reason. Yes, yeah. remember there, to yeah. everybody under those circumstances. Yeah. I don't know that it's that specific, but I mean, a coroner had a, its own policy that it had adopted pursuant to that statute. So its own good faith interpretation of the statutory duty. Uh, at least, no, I, I hadn't investigated or had any evidence to suggest it was other than their good faith policy. But yeah, uh, they uh, inflexibly apply it. Um, just quickly, um, we're almost out of time. 
I'm just going to wrap it up. We were supposed to talk about the Baron case. I think we're going to have to do a separate CLE for that. Just for that case. Actually, recently I was at a fascinating case a year ago with Baron Academy um, made it to the semifinals, championships. And, and the game was on Saturday. It was on Shabbat Friday night. Saturday, late Saturday afternoon. It was a case where, again, they went um, some parents. And you're one of the defendants. Parents. So you, um, you actually sued a public school where it was taking place, and also the Texas Association of Private and Parochial Schools um, that, uh, about whether they can play on Saturday. There was a TRO. They tried to get a TRO prior to the TRO being issued. What I understand, the, um, the TAPs backed down. As soon never as the went case was filed, they backed down. Right. So never went even to a hearing. But uh, so we're gonna, we'll, we'll do a separate CLE on that. We'll invite you back. Maybe we'll invite you back. Um, Maybe. So uh, <laughs> but quickly, just to wrap it up, I just wanted to point out that in, because we do want to prepare, compare it through the Jewish perspective. Um, that's what I'm here for. So I, in general, like as I was saying in the beginning, um, the concept of separation of church and state is not just, um, I think it's just contradictory to the whole concept because Judaism, this is something as even as I think as many Jews, even many observant Jews don't understand this. Judaism is not, we think, we like to think about Judaism as, you know, we're just like other religions in the sense of, I go to church on Sunday, we go to church on Saturday, we have different practices maybe. We're all practicing, there's our religion and then there's the rest of our lives. Judaism very clearly, um, I think, again, many Jews don't realize this, it's, it's, it's very different in that sense of other religions where it's, Judaism is not about the ritual, obviously it's a small part of it, forming rituals and, and doing this mitzvah or that mitzvah, whether, whatever it may be, in a certain sense, it's, it's about creating a society. The purpose and the goal of, of uh, Judaism, and according to the Torah, whether a Jewish society or non-Jewish society, is to create a society that upholds certain morals, and that, that really is part of every part of your life. So there's no, you can't really separate, it's impossible to talk about separation in the sense of separating the judicial system from from the religion or separating commerce or, or almost every aspect of your life is governed um, by the Torah. So there's no, it's impossible to separate it again because the whole purpose to a large extent of Judaism is to create a society or even a state, so to speak, that, um, that upholds certain morals. I think this is also a key difference between Judaism and other religions in the sense that we are universal religion. We don't say you have to be Jewish in order to, to uh, this is a question that, as a rabbi, comes to me many times is what's, what's the difference between Judaism and Sharia law, um, especially today where this is coming to the courts and um, in certain cases it already has gotten to the courts. Why, in what way are we different? Um, is Judaism different than Sharia law? And I think this is a key point is that um, Judaism is universal. We don't tell people to become Jewish. We're not espousing the Jewish law for the state um, or for the country. Um, what we're doing is, even in Judaism, when the Torah passes, is you can you don't have to be Jewish to be quote unquote saved for salvation as other religions say. If you're not baptized, you're going to hell. If you're, if you're, if you're an infidel, you are gonna um, decapitate you. We don't, Judaism does not say that, and we don't espouse our religion to people who are not Jewish. You can get to the same place um, being a non-Jew um, as, uh, as anyone else in that sense. You can, be, um, you can arrive at the same form of salvation. I don't like using that word, but, but uh, so that's an important difference, I think, between Judaism and um, other religions, and in that sense, clearly there cannot be any separation of church and state. Obviously, there's a lot more to talk about, but uh, we're out of time. So thank you very much for coming, and thank you, Grant Orbert, for uh,
shedding light on this very complicated issue. Um, so hopefully we'll do another session again on some of the other issues that, that are relevant to these, this topic. Thank you. I have to run up the call, but let's get lunch some time. Maybe love to go out there teach at the South Texas College of Law right here. Oh, great. Very, very, very close. Intimidating. He's saying we're a constitutional law professor. Yeah, and I'm also a big fan of Judge Smith, so we'll go hang out sometime. I'll drop you an email, okay? Great. Me too. Yes, I will. Yes, do you have her card handy? Yes. I gave up my last card to her, but I will drop this. I have a call starting in a minute, so i got to run and go take it right outside. Thank you, Rabbi. Great seeing you. Thank you for coming. Thank you, sir. I will see you. Um, everyone, make sure to sign in if you want your I credit. You yeah. Please make sure to sign in the back of the room. Um, Israel. Anyway, I remember them yeah, talking about that case when my dad passed away. Met you. Go over the years several times, but uh, I enjoyed the topic very much. No, we didn't cover it. What, what in the Barron case? What was the state actor there? Oh well, that's not that was the hard part. Okay, I guess Mark, we'll Mark was actually plaintiff. In the right. case. Um, but TAPS is a private organization. It's the Texas Association of Private, private Programs. Yeah, programs. Um, so there's really not. They wrap, from what I've heard from Rabbi Grossman, they made the argument that they're playing in publicly funded, uh, entitled, whatever. TAPS rented the gym from, yeah. the, from the district. Which is, you know, but that's built a commercial relationship. Right. I mean, Presumably anybody could do that. Right. Uh, certainly anybody with a purpose comparable with tasks that doesn't make him a public actor. Right. Although you see that that's a, that's a frequent argument. It's good enough, I and mean, that's a classic example. It's good enough to get a lawsuit on file yeah. and threaten further legal action. And people, I mean, at the practical level, whether you win or not, people have to pay their attorneys, and why can't we just put it? scheduled match for Sunday, you know, whatever. Uh, you start to consider alternatives and it worked out. And, you know, whether it was because everybody thought, okay, let's, let's not go to court over this, let's be reasonable uh, and polite. And I mean, that's, to me, that's, that's the area where common sense and politeness and consideration should prevail rather than law. But um, as a practical matter, you just need an argument that gets you into court and doesn't get you out of court too quickly. Uh, I find that's the case in my business, whether I'm plaintiff or defendant. That's uh, a powerful thing, yeah. even if you're ultimately, you know, you're going to win, but you're going to spend 150,000 attorney's fees winning uh, when you could settle this for 10 or 20,000. Uh, that, that's leverage. But uh, there's a similar case on that particular point when the um, the Republican Party was sued, the Texas Republican Party was sued by the um, Wildcat Republicans group, which is gay Republicans. Um, and they sued saying they were being deprived of equal protection and they, that the state, there's so much that the state does in league with parties, mm -hmm. generally in the federal government too, that they're imbued with public actor status was the argument. They ultimately lost, but it went all the way to Fifth Circuit. And those sometimes come out differently, but it's a similar kind of argument. Well, thank you very much. Good to see you. How are uh, Yakov and Sprumi? Oh, they're, they're doing well. They're doing well. Uh, come on. Uh, got a nice, nice family. Yes, please give me the margot. I'll definitely do that. Just wanted to say thank you oh, and um, say hi. 
kind of introduce myself and also exchange a card. Um, I work for ADL and uh, practice. Yeah, practice civil rights for the league, and sometimes some issues come up where the perspective of somebody who's been a judge could be useful to just like run things by. Absolutely, cool. for free comment, yeah. Awesome. Okay. What kind of things are you doing? Uh, all sorts of stuff. Huh? Yeah, uh, religious freedom, LGBT related issues, anti discrimination statutes. I oversee Christine, seven. Please tell my Judge Massacre. Yeah. Justice Massacre. Well, and that was the first court that got it wrong here. Well, you know what, though? They think that they're being helpful when they write things. Oh, it was George Hanks. It was gentle and nice as it could be. My name wasn't mentioned, and they said we understand the trial judge. This is an emergency thing, and and you don't want to drag the widow into court. But the they reversed on the the crucial missing evidence point. Yeah, was that um, there was no evidence that the widow or the decedent had primarily. That the, particular belief. The particular belief. Uh, to me, I think it's enough. They're Orthodox Jews. They subscribe to the Orthodox beliefs. That was established by the record, and then we had three rabbis testify on what the, that includes. Yeah. This I mean, core belief. Yeah. I think it was a little picky. But I would say this, though. Having been at the court at that time, you should know that when you have personal friends who are judges on the court, there's even a little bit more sensitivity. How, how do we reverse nicely? Cause it's oh, I'm sure. Stork, George and Jane, very, especially. Yes, very, very concerned about that. Terry, I know, but not well. Yeah, well. Same thing applies, basically. But definitely the former trial court judges are very, very sensitive to that. No, I'm sure. And, uh, yeah. He said Judge Brown, he's a jerk. Yeah, I'll tell him you said that. Please. I'm on the panel with him now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I work in seven states. So in what? Southern seven, states? Seven states. Which one? Um, Mississippi, Arkansas, oh, Louisiana, bless. Texas, Oklahoma. Do you carry a gun? Uh, Arizona, New Mexico. I don't. Yeah, I actually do not. Um, but so it's, it's a wide range of issues. We don't directly represent clients, but we get a lot of, a lot of, um, we do mainly briefings on an appellate level. Yeah, and um, we do a lot of advocacy work. And then we handle, I mean, I provide in-house counsel to the offices on a range of civil rights issues. So, you know, these kinds of things. Um, we provide a lot of guidance on Barron Academy and on what's been happening with kids. We wrote a letter. I, my colleague. his question better than I did. I can answer all these questions. And this is, yeah. Well, he was, he was wondering where the state action was yeah. on the Barron Academy thing. Um, Rabbi Grossman had mentioned that, that that was an issue, but that there was uh, the uh, facility they were renting, the TAPS was renting. Was yeah, it was a state. Well, I think it was a county high school or something. Okay. Yeah. Um, but TAPS has changed their policies subsequently. So they've made a they've made an accommodation about um, I don't think I think they I don't know what the exact text of the the new the new rule is, but that they won't um, I think they leave it to the schools to make the determination, which is actually what the policy was on the local level. But you know, it's a good old boy club, and they don't they don't want Muslims in their club, and they don't really want Jews in their club either. I think that Texas School for the Deaf is a member of TAPS too, and that was one of the arguments that I was sort of putting forward when I was speaking to different people about it was that there are member or you know members of the organization that are um, state actors. So 
Oh, it was uh, state-supported deaf school? I think it's Texas okay. School for the Deaf. I mean, I just remembered when I initially looked at all the list of the people that were participants yeah. in TAPS. I grew up in TAPS. Yeah, I mean, look, I grew up in Texas. You know, one of the things we say at ADL is that you know, the First Amendment only applies within, you know, 50 miles of the nearest Jew. Right? So if, you, if you live in, in deep east Texas or if you live in central Texas, you know, 50 miles outside of Austin, Santa Fe. Yeah, Santa Fe. Big case. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's really nice to know you. And How thank did you get involved? How did you end up coming here? to ADL to work for? Um, I wanted to practice for private law. No, before? Mm -hmm. I worked for the legislature mm -hmm. and uh, did policy work, and I wanted to continue. From Houston. Yeah. Okay. South Africa. For, yeah. I worked for Dianta. I just wanted to do policy work and um, social justice. Sound for I can put it on. <laughs> yeah. okay. I know a lot of the South Africans here. Yeah. Good, great. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good to so nice to meet you, Grant. Take care. You did a great job. And please call me. I'd yeah, love I to hear more about your, nice. what you're doing. Yeah, and it's nice to be able to get the procedural perspective because sometimes that's something that I don't really have. Yeah. So, you know. On the other hand, you have a lot more interesting cases than my, my average case. Yeah, I know. We, we deal with some interesting stuff that you can't even imagine. Um, I want to read you what was, maybe I'll email you just to get the site for the case. Oh, this Your one? Case. What was it? Yeah. Um, I didn't want to say the uh, rabbi yeah. suggested I agree. That's a good Not idea. say the name, but. Yeah. Uh, uh, do you have it? Yeah, do you don't mind? Yeah, I would like to keep the rest yeah. of this because it's got my notes on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Highlights. Awesome. Here, you can even have your original story. Thank you. Thanks. Where the rubber meets the road, yeah. Seemed a little insensitive. I didn't, I tried to come up with something better. Talk about my Yeah, no, it's, there it is. it's all about nuance, right? So much in life. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Take care. care. Just lucky. You know, one of the scary things for me, I guess, is that I, it wasn't this guy's court. Is the one of the judges that was involved in that uh, that book that was outside the Harris County Courthouse is now a Texas Supreme Court judge. He's the one who was advocating that he, he's, it was all in disrepair, nobody paid Oh, John Devine. Yeah, it was all in disrepair, nobody paid any attention to it. He started using his campaign funds to fix it up, they put a light on it. And in fact, I had a case going on around that time, and I, my client says to me, he, and, and I've been in the courthouse, I don't know how many times, you know, and I never even noticed this thing. I mean, it was so, it was just like a, uh, a little statue, and, and whether it had something in it or not, I don't know that I ever noticed it, you know? But I think for a while people were using it as a cigarette thing, you know? Yeah. And, and so, but after Devon fixed it up, uh, I had a client, we had a case there, and the client comes to me and says, well, I thought there was separation of church and faith. I said, well, what are you talking about? Well, how come there's a Bible outside in front of the courthouse? And I said, what Bible? What are you talking about? And I didn't even know what's there. And then I looked at it, and uh, I realized. Shalom.